0: Please visit redemptionokc.com. And what a great day for us to get celebrate here at UCO on the way to our new downtown building. Uh, We're excited to be here. It's fun to to be in a new space, to kind of experience something different. Uh, I do want to let you know stack chairs at the end of the day. Um, So enjoy that much of it. And we are going to be in 15 today. And I'm already breaking here, aren't I? All right. He was going all, he was, everything was going great until I got up here. Um, hey, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 today. Today, we're actually going to wrap up our series on A Deep Meaningful Life. Next week, we have kick off Sunday, and we're actually going to be back in the book of Acts. And so we went through the first seven chapters of Acts in the fall, and we're jumping back into the book of Acts, uh, starting chapter eight next week. Uh, but today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 as we wrap up the series called meaningful life and we're gonna be looking at a story called the prodigal son there's actually three different stories that Jesus tells but in the gospel of Luke it's interesting because Jesus ministry is flourishing he's gathering a a large following he's got people that are pursuing uh kind of truth and who he is and what's remarkable about that interaction is that as Jesus moves into a city he tends to step in and heal uh, those who are broken. He tends to build up those who are hurting. He tends to then teach and, and give instruction to people that need instruction. And in the midst of that, um, people are responding to Jesus in different ways. So we're going to see different kinds of responses that people have to Jesus. Uh, look at me in Luke chapter 15. We're just going to start here in the first couple of verses. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him. So Jesus told them this parable. I'm going to stop right there because this really sets up our story, sets up why Jesus is going to do what he does in uh, this, uh, this, this story. And really what we see is Jesus is kind of ruffling some feathers, right? Uh, Jesus is not operating according to uh, the religious rules doing the things that uh, normal people expect him to do.
1: And uh, do you guys need me to do anything different? You want me to go handheld? There you go. All right. Okay. So
0: um, now I've got to figure out how not to talk with my hands. So good luck with all that. Um, and it's been a couple weeks of this. We had this the last couple weeks uh, at the at the last building and uh, some of that's why we want a new building, right? It's like everything just plugs in and it all stays there. So we're going to get there. But let's jump in. Uh, let me go back and just reread Luke 15 and we'll jump in. Uh, now, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is going to then tell them a story or a parable. Uh, it's interesting. You know, we, we just finished singing these songs. holy, holy. Holy and 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 it makes sense then some ways it would be shocking to the religious people today that Jesus would eat with sinners because what does uh, holiness have to do with sinner with sin uh, that, that somehow if, if god is holy and he's holy other than we are and if he's different than we are then they're they're thinking of things like the psalms what is man that you are mindful of him o oh lord why would you conduct, kind of come down and and be present with us and Uh, What does someone who is sinful have to do with something that is holy? And so the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the the religious scholars, put themselves closer to God. That that they are somehow in the category of holiness, and they're confused because they're like, well, Jesus, shouldn't you want to hang out with us holy people? Why is it that you're hanging out with all those sinful people? And their religious metrics aren't really working. But here's what's interesting. You notice what Luke says about these sinners and tax collectors. The the tax collectors and sinners were what
1: were they doing? It says they were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That the Son of God came down and, and when he appeared, the people who were not holy said,
0: I would like to go hear more about what he's saying. I want to be closer to him. I want to draw near to him. And I think that's a remarkable Thing that we begin to begin to understand in what Luke is trying to say, and he makes this generalized statement. So Luke is writing this years later when he looks back at Jesus and his ministry and his interaction with the people of his world. What he remembered is, man, all those people that were labeled as the sinful people in that world, they drew closer to Jesus and wanted to hear more from him. The ones that were skeptical were the religious leaders. The ones who were self-righteous, the ones who were prideful, the ones who said, Man, I've done it all right. I've checked all the boxes, I've done all the stuff. I, I should be the one Jesus goes, man. I would be honored if I could just sit down with you guys because you're so holy. But that's not the one that Jesus chooses. And then notice what it says about them. It says that they're all grumbling and saying, And who is this guy? Why is he hanging out with those folks? When he could be hanging out with us. And so they're put off by all that it is that jesus is doing and i'm sure that they were good productive citizens i'm sure that they were acceptable in the broader culture uh, but they're confused by jesus preference and that's the setup to the story and so do you know what you see what happens next in the story it says jesus hearing them grumbling and what it is they were saying tells them this parable so he begins to tell a story which means this story is directly related to what just happened right? So, the story that Jesus is going to tell is going to somehow confront the thing that just happened with the Pharisees and the scribes. And it says, so because of what they were doing, he told them this parable. And he begins to tell this pointed story. Now, the rest of all of, of Luke chapter 15 is really Jesus confronting and, 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 in a sense, rebuking these religious leaders. He's going to confront them on their mistake, their mistake about his mission and what it is he came to do he's actually not going to tell one parable he's going to tell three different parables you notice in verses three to seven he tells the parable of the lost sheep Uh, verses eight to ten he tells the parable of the lost coin verses 11 to 32 he's going to tell the parable of the lost son and so those three parables are all linked and they all go together now these are really practical things i'm not going to break down the first two a lot but let me just say this when he tells you the, the the parable of the lost sheep He's using a really practical thing. He's talking to someone who's a businessman. He says, hey, if you were a, if you were a shepherd and you lost a sheep and you had 99 that were, they were in the pen, but you knew one was still running around out there, what would you do? And their answer is pretty simple, right? Like I'd go hunt down the lost sheep because this thing's valuable. Uh, that, that's part of how I make my living. And so I would drop everything and I would run out and I'd go get the sheep. And what would happen? What would you do when you got back and you brought the sheep in? And you'd gather your family and your other coworkers and you'd all circle up and go, hey, found the sheep, high fives, right? And let's throw a farty, let's have a meal, let's celebrate the fact that we found the lost sheep, we got some of our income back. And then he goes to another lady and he's talking to a woman in that area and she says, now if you lost your wedding ring, tell me what you would do if you lost your wedding ring. I mean, he actually says a coin, but coins don't seem invaluable to us, so I'm going to say a wedding ring. Like, ladies, if you lost your wedding ring, what would you do? You would stop everything. You would tell everyone, like, stop moving. Don't breathe. Like, everyone look around. We're going to find this thing. And it says that when she lost this coin, she began to clean up all over the house. She looked in all the little cracks in the floor. She looked in all the places it could have slid uh, kind of under the refrigerator or under the oven or uh, down the drain. And, And she began to look for it. And what happens when she finds it? She rejoices, right? She's like, yes, I found the wedding ring. And she calls everyone in and says, hey, I'm cooking a big meal tonight. We're going to celebrate. The ring which I thought was lost is now found. So what are the two things that happen in the story? Every time something gets lost and is found, it says they gather a group of people together, and they rejoice and celebrate. Uh, Do you see the pattern in Jesus' story? So those are the first two, the lost sheep, the lost coin. Now we go to the third story which is the lost son. And what we need to understand in all of this is that deep joy always comes when something that is lost is found. And in, the story, in, in Jesus' story, part of what he's saying is there's a danger for us in the spiritual life that a person can be close to the proximity of God, a person can be around the things of God, a person can use God talk and God practices and somehow miss the heart of God that rejoices when the lost are found. And that's what Jesus is going to try to get them to understand. And so friends, as we think about what does it look like for us as a church to live with a meaningful mission, it starts ultimately with our hearts learning to rejoice in the things that cause our Heavenly Father's heart to rejoice. That if we're going to be those that worship a holy God, we have to understand that, that God sent His Son, and His Son became known as the friend of sinners. And He, he had meals and enjoyed being with them, and He celebrated when the lost were found, and if we're going to live on a mission for that Jesus and that God, that Heavenly Father, then our hearts must learn to rejoice in the things they rejoice in. So let's look at the story of the prodigal. And really, this may be better known, or it might be better labeled as the, the story of the two sons, because notice how Jesus starts the story here in Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to just read the beginning of the story. It says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father Give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent, his, sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread? And yet I perish here with hunger. We're going to stop there for just a minute because I want to tease out kind of what's happening with this younger son. And you understand the story, then you've probably heard this story before. It's one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. But the younger son says, uh, give me everything that's coming to me. Like, I don't want to wait till you die and then get rich. I'd rather you just give me my inheritance now so I can live it up while I'm young, uh, which in some ways kind of makes sense, right? Like, don't wait until I don't need it anymore. Go and give me all the stuff now, and I'm going to live the good life. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to go out and squander it and have a lot of fun in terms of my own, my own life. And it says that he took his father's money and he headed to Vegas, or maybe it was L.A. I don't know where he went, but he went off to a far-off country, uh, somewhere that was far from home where he thought he could live the good life you know, it says that, um, that that he took everything his father provided for them, he ran away, and began to go squander it all. Now, he Instagrams the whole thing, so his family knows exactly all the stuff he's up to. You know, his mom's still tracking him. Kids, they, your mama does that. Like, you know, you know she doesn't see your Instagram, but she sees it all, and she knows exactly what you're doing. And that's what was happening here, is his dad's going, oh, dude, I don't know what he's doing, but he probably shouldn't be with her. And he probably shouldn't be doing that. and He probably shouldn't be drinking that thing. And he probably shouldn't be living it up quite, quite that freely. And so he blows the entire wad on, family, on fun and frivolous things. That was his plan. Gaddy, give me all my stuff, and I'm going to go off, and I'm going to party, and I'm going to have fun. It says he squandered it in reckless living. Now, eventually, he runs out, as we're wont to do, right? It's kind of the way things go, is you can run and run and run, but eventually, things begin to bottom out. And he hits bottom, and that's not hard to predict. You notice, though, in verse 17, uh, this kind of predictable story takes a turn. Notice what it says. It says, but when he came to himself. It's an interesting phrase. That, that somehow there was a wake-up call. There was a, something that dawned on him. He, he, he hit bottom, and he looked up and said, this isn't going well. And he began to think about his situation and think about it a little differently. Now, what's interesting about our world is we, we tend to think that if we run off and enjoy life as much as we want, we're going to find ourselves, is what we tend to say, right? I'm going to go pursue all these things, and then I'm going to, I'm going to find the real me. I'm going to, I'm going to find the, the good life. I'm going to find the things that I want. If I can just throw off the shackles of morality, religion, family, restriction, institutions, uh, if I can throw off the shackles of all these things, then I can move into really understanding the, the truest version of who I am. And I'll find myself. We talk about that is the path of self-fulfillment. And we see it all over our world and we see it in all kinds of different ways. It tends to be the way in which we understand things. So we tell people things like, You do you. You're the captain of your own soul. And you you chase life on your own terms. You're the you're the only one that can define you. And we set up freedom as the highest value, and freedom is ultimately defined as living without any restraints. So as long as I've got enough uh, enough income to free my free me up to go pursue and do all the things I want to do and live any of the ways I want to live, then I'm going to find the truest version of myself because I've got freedom to live without any kind of restraints, and that's the that's the life that we put out in front of people and what we chase and what we desire, and it's filled with statements like this: If I can just, however you want to fill in the blank, because we all have to fill it in ourselves, no one can tell you what it is. You have to determine for yourself what life looks. But if I can just have this, I'll have the life I want, I'll have the friends I want. If I can just this, I'll have the fun I want, the freedom, the success, the identity, the adventurous life I want. However it is you want to fill in the blank, that if I pursue these things, if I'm free to pursue these things, I'll experience really who I, who I really am. But what we see in Jesus' story is, is the exact opposite, isn't it? What we see in Jesus' story is this guy runs to the end and he looks up and he's actually, he's not found himself, he's lost himself. And he says he begins to come to himself again. He, he comes back to who he really is and says, man, this is not working. This isn't leading me where I thought I was going to go. And he's actually lost his way, he's lost his freedom, he's lost his identity, he's lost his comfort, he, he's lost himself. And friends, you need to understand that humility comes when you realize that the pain of going home is less than the pain of staying where you are what he realizes is, I'm not in a good place. This is in verse 14, what he says, he began to be in need. Verse 16, he says, he was longing to be fed. What do those mean? They mean he was hungry. He's running around feeding pigs, and he's giving them slop, but he himself has a stomach that's still grumbling. And in Jesus' story, it's physical hunger, but I think that hunger could take a lot of different forms. That hunger could be a spiritual hunger. It could be an emotional hunger hunger. Uh, to to quote the great theologian Bruce Springsteen, Everyone's got a hungry heart. Like we've all got these desires and these things that we want, and we try to fill them and we try to meet a need. And what what the younger son bought into was a lie that said, if you run after all the things and you grab hold of everything, you're gonna somehow be able to fill yourself. And when he got to the end he realized, Man, I'm still hungry. I've done all the things I wanted to do, and this hunger is still there. And so seventeen turning point comes he came to himself he begins to wake up and see things clearly what is it that he realizes he realizes two things that kind of are two sides of the same coin the first was i'm still hungry and the second that this that's just as important is in my father's house there's plenty of bread and more than enough to spare everyone in my father's house is is full no one in my father's house is hungry so if I'm here and, and I'm hungry, but my dad has more than enough to spare and everyone's eating more than they can, I should probably go run home and go to my father so that I can be fed and begin to experience something that's better. Friends, there's a lot of people in our world that are hungry, but they've yet to realize there's a heavenly father that has
1: more than enough for them. And so they're, they're hungry and they're running around still trying to fill that hunger. They're still trying to fill the empty tank of their heart.
0: But they've not yet turned and said, but I have a father in heaven who has more than enough to spare for me to meet all of my needs. And so they have yet to turn and go to him. And so they continue to live an impoverished existence. Friends, what you and I need more than anything else is to be convinced that God can meet all our needs. Be
1: convinced that though we are hungry, we have a, we have a father who has more than enough to spare for each one of us so that we might return and go to him. And that's what
0: we see next in this story is he makes the decision to go home. Notice what it says in verses 18 through 20. Verse 18, it says, or verse 17 says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against you, against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. And so in this, uh, the, this story, this dawning comes on him that says, man, where I thought I was running and everything I thought was going to fulfill me didn't fulfill me. In fact, I'm still hungry. But my father has more than enough to meet my need. So he makes a commitment. He makes a decision. I'm going to rise. I'm going to leave the place I am, and I'm going to go home. And I'm going to run back to my father. Now, what, when this happens, it's interesting that he has to name his situation, doesn't he? He says, I've sinned. I think it's important to, to acknowledge the reality of our life. sometimes. The reason he's hungry is because of his sin. And, and sin isn't just I tripped and stumbled and did a few things. It's something that it really infects everything about who we are. And so he comes and he recognizes that I've got no ground to stand on. I have no righteousness of my own. I'm coming home empty-handed to seek restoration with my Father. Friends, we don't just need some new behavior. We need a new life. We need to confess and repent. We need to acknowledge that our way didn't lead us where we thought we wanted to go. We need to acknowledge that we're needy and we're hungry and we surrender our rights. And you notice what it is, he comes home empty handed. Now it's interesting when you look at this story, you can almost hear him rehearsing his speech on the journey home. Uh, when I read in just a minute, you can almost hear him practicing. He's anxious. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed of Path he's chosen and everywhere he went, and in the midst of uh, kind of this this struggle, you can kind of imagine him uh, rehearsing this speech. Uh, have you ever been in that place? Uh, teenagers, you know what I'm talking about? Where you know you did something, you, kn- you know the grade you got on your test, and you know you got home, and you're like, maybe they just won't ask. But then you know at some point they're going to get a report card, and then they're going to ask. And so you can kind of delay, like, well, maybe I just get like. Any of you just come through that season, students? Like you come into Christmas, you get to Christmas break, and you're like, report card, teachers are not getting that thing done until at least after Christmas. So I'm good through Christmas. And then you wait, and then you stretch it out, and you stretch it out, and you stretch it out, but you know it's coming, right? I think that's probably how this guy felt in the middle of the situation is he, he's going home, he's leaving the far country. Remember, he ran away a long ways. So he's got this long walk home, and as he's going home, he's feeling ashamed, he's feeling guilty, he's feeling like a failure. And he's coming home, and he's practicing his speech in his head. How do I position this just right and say it just right so that my dad accepts me back? And it creates as little pain for me as possible. Let's look at what happens in verse 20, because what's remarkable is what happens when he comes home. Verse 20 says, Now he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He he gave him the speech that he'd been practicing all the way home. He, He recited it just perfectly. Notice how much the father cares about his speech. What's the father do? But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his hand. Bring shoes and put them on his feet. And he brought the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. The son comes and he's not demanding anything. He's ashamed. He's rehearsed his speech and he enters the father. He comes home and he, Sees the father off, and he's ready to, to, to make his speech to the father. You notice what the father does. As soon as he starts his speech, the father just interrupts him. He's like, I don't care about that. You were dead, and you're alive.
1: And he embraces him. Isn't that a remarkable story that Jesus is telling so that you and I understand what the love of God looks like, what the love of a heavenly father looks like, what someone who runs to a son who returns home, Looks like. It's interesting that the son is trying to explain his unworthiness. Not worthy to even be called your son. What's the father do? Embraces him, begins to throw a party and celebrate. The son is walking in shame and his, his head is hung low. What's the father do? Grabs him in a big old bear hug. It's a fascinating story that Jesus tells, and I think. Many of us have a hard time trusting God's acceptance. We think God tolerates us. We think God puts up with us. We think God's like a public
0: school teacher who can't fail a student, so he kind of just slides you by with a D so you can pass on to the next
1: grade, but he knows you're never going to go anywhere. But you know, that's not what the story says, is it? It's not the, the picture that it gives
0: at all. In fact, what Jesus wanted us to understand what the love of a heavenly father is like, he said it's like a good father who lost his son. And so much so that though his son had gone off to a far off country and he'd heard all the reports of all the bad stuff his son had done, none of this was news to him. He knew, what all, uh, he knew that he'd squandered everything and he knew that he'd blown it. He knew that he'd fallen flat on his face. He knew that he had run off in reckless living. He knew all the, the resume of all the things that the, that the son had done
1: out there in the far-off country. But where is the father? He's still on the porch waiting for the son to come home. When does the father begin to see his son? It says, while he was a long ways off.
0: He jumps off the porch and he began to Have you ever seen an old man run? I mean, what ha- that's what the story means. It's meant to be funny. Like you're almost meant to laugh out loud at what happens because he says, while he sees him, Coming down the road, way off in the distance, this old man jumps off the porch and runs as far as he can and grabs up his son. And his son's going, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And I've blown everything, and I've forgiven I've, I've sinned against you and against heaven. And his dad immediately
1: embraces him. Notice what the father says. He says, bring me the best robe. He says, bring me the best robe. When he takes a robe, what's he do? He puts it over him. The robe is
0: intended to take his shame and cover it up with something beautiful. Take that which he's ashamed of and let's cover it with something wonderful. Then he says, put a ring on his hand. A ring in that culture was a sign of family. He said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. What's he say? Put my family ring on this boy's boy's hand. He belongs to me. This is my son. And he gives him back his identity. Put shoes on his feet. He comforts him and cares for his needs.
1: Then he says, "Go and kill the fatted calf." He celebrates his return with a feast and with a party. Why? My son was dead and he's alive. He's lost. He was found. There's a song; these lines turned into called "Amazing Grace." See, this is the
0: heart of the Christian faith. This is a resurrection. My son was dead and he's alive. The, 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 he was. He, this is a new beginning. It's not just a do over or a second chance or a blank slate or a you can do better this time, buddy sort of a speech. This is a whole new life. He was dead and he's alive. That's what grace does to us. And that's the core of the Christian faith. Friends, do you need to know
1: a grace like that? Do you need to know a grace that covers your shame? Do you need to know a grace that when you think, I'm not worthy to bear the name of Christ? says, put a ring on that, that lady's finger. Put a ring on that, that man's finger. That's my daughter and that's my son. Do you need to know a grace that sees your need and says, get some shoes to take care of her? Do you need to know a grace that says, when you come home, even when you've blown it, let's
0: throw a party. Let's celebrate. Let's throw a feast and enjoy this. And so they begin to celebrate. The DJs start spinning some tunes. They start getting ready to, to throw a, a big party. They've got kind of the lights flashing in the background, and uh, they're setting up the whole thing. And as they do, uh, Jesus wants us to understand that this is what the love of a Heavenly Father is like. And friends, I just know that there's some of us in here that need to arise and go home to our Heavenly Father. There's some of us here that are still walking in shame. Some of us here that are still hungry. And what I want to say to you is, in your Heavenly Father's house, there's more than enough to take care of all your needs. You'll just arrive and come home. Now, that's the good news of the gospel, that he will cover your shame, he'll restore your relationship, he'll comfort you, and he'll celebrate your return. But that's not the end of Jesus' story, is it? So that's the, that's the, the younger son's story. But look with me in verses 25 and beyond, as we look at the older brother and his part of the story. Verse 25 says, now the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father and said, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, the one who devoured all his property with prostitutes, he killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting that I should celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. So now you've got a very different response from the older brother, don't you? So the younger brothers come home, and you see this huge celebration. Uh, to me, this is almost a comical scene. The older brother's kind of sauntering in from the fields, and he's been out probably doing what he's supposed to do. Uh, you know, older brothers are, tend to be rule followers; they tend to do all the right things. And so, he's probably out there doing all the right things and doing things. He's walking in. He hears music, and he, the the funny thing to me is he's like, "Oh, there's music!" And he calls. He won't. He won't go like his natural response didn't go like party. Let's go see what's happening over there. This killjoy is going. Hey, servant, come here. What's up over there? Like, what, Why are they having a good time? I don't understand. And he's a little bit nervous about this. He's, he's fearful of what's going on when he hears music and laughter. Uh, isn't that an odd response? That this is not normal to experience this kind of thing. So it takes him back, and he's a little bit skeptical of it when he hears singing and dancing and begins to get nervous. Uh, Friends, I don't know if you're aware of this, but some spiritual circles tend to collect people like this. Uh, that's just a reality of, and it's been there in Jesus' time, and it's true in our time. Uh, There are people that just are fearful of something that looks joyful. And it looks a little bit out of control. It looks a little bit rambunctious and something that we're not quite sure we can manage. And so he's fearful of, ultimately, what we're going to see is he's fearful of grace and what those things mean. He's skeptical of joy. And I want you to know this isn't a personality issue. Uh, This is a perspective issue. It's not about how he's emotionally wired. It's the way he's viewing the world. And you notice, you kind of see that answer in, in, in the, the interaction he has with the father. He doesn't understand the father's goodness. And he thinks, well, you know, you never celebrated with me and my friends. And he says, and yet um, I did everything just right. I, I worked hard for you. I did all the right things. I never ran off and got prostitutes like he did. I didn't do all the bad stuff, and I did do all the good stuff. and yet. Um, you didn't run out and celebrate with me.
1: Verse, eight, verse 28 tells us he's filled with what? He's angry. He's angry. Why? Because he says, I worked hard,
0: and I did all the right stuff, and I pursued all the right thing, and I, and I can continue to, to push and to drive and to try and to struggle, and it didn't lead me to where I got to experience the same kind of joy. What happens when we... When we live a life that's full of pride and self-righteousness and
1: self-justification, we don't end up in a pigsty like the younger brother. We end up close by the father, and yet still angry, and not having a heart that is stirred with the joy of his grace.
0: It's interesting to me, though. How does the father? How does? How does the father respond to the older son? Let's be. Let's be honest, parents. Like if your younger son had been gone for a long time and you've been lost, I'm going to guess most of us wouldn't leave his side for a while. Like we're just going to stay right there with the younger son. Do you notice what the the father does? When the older son refuses to come in and stays outside the party, the the father who ran out to the younger son also left home and goes out to the older son. He had enough love for both sons. There, There was no lack in the love of the father. And so he moves toward the older son. And in the middle of this scenario, what we see is that the older son had remained in close proximity to the father,
1: but his heart was not near to the father. And that should be a scary thing for us. We grew up in church. Because what it means is that we can be
0: close to, to God, and we can, have, we, can, we can talk about God, and we can live in the midst of, Church stuff where, uh, that, that is all supposed to be focused on God, and yet our hearts can be distant from the heart of the Father in the middle of the, way, or in the ways in which we live. And so, what happens here is that, uh, that the Father goes out and tries to entreat the, the older son to come in. Now, what's interesting to me is the younger son's sin was really obvious, wasn't it? There was no doubt about the younger son's sin. He'd Instagrammed the whole thing, and everyone saw him falling on his face and knew what he'd gone to. You notice the older brother's like, dude, he's been running around spending all your inheritance with prostitutes, and he squandered everything. So everyone knew about his sin. What's interesting here is that it's harder to, to see the sin of the older brother, isn't it? It's harder to see the sin of self-righteousness. It's harder to see the sin of pride. You notice what he says, though. He says, these many years I've served you, which is his way of saying, look at all the good I've done. He says, I've never disobeyed you, which means "I've never, I, I look at how little bad, bad that I did. I didn't do the bad stuff. I did all the good stuff. Shouldn't you reward me? Because if the spiritual life is built upon my holiness and my goodness, I feel like I've done better than most people. And that's what happens when we take the road of pride or the road of self-righteousness as opposed to the road of grace is we play the comparison game. And we look around at others and go, well, I think I'm doing better than that guy and that guy, so I'm probably in, a, in, the, good, in, in, the, in the good group, and I'm probably going to be okay. Now, the interesting thing to me is it, you don't have to go very far to find this guy's sin, do you? The father says, why don't you come into the party with the rest of us? And what's he say? No. But he, but he says it says, I've never disobeyed you. It's like, well, except for like, the thing you're doing literally right now. Like, you literally just told me no like he, he the 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 reality of this is he didn't do everything perfect but he looked at himself as though he had done everything right and older brothers tend to self-justify and they tend to make everything appear as though they've done the right thing even though they didn't and they don't want to accept that they're that they, that they themselves are also broken and sinful friends here's what we need to see when when you understand them, kind of how God is working and what's happening in the story, Jesus is trying to talk to these Pharisees and help them understand that there's nothing that derails the mission of God in the the world like a prideful spirit, a religious spirit, a self-righteous spirit, or a legalistic spirit, or this-is-how-we-do-it
1: mindset. Those are the things that always quench the the movement of God in the world. They don't enable it. It's interesting that um,
0: in the story, Jesus confronts the grumbling of the Pharisees. And what he's trying to get people to understand is that when you're focused on human effort and human structures and human measures of success rather than on the heart of God, it always undercuts the truest mission of what we're called to be. And Jesus is trying to invite them out and draw them out and realize, hey, it's not just those sinners I want to have a meal with. I just need you to realize that you're also one of those sinners. Because I will also come and sit down and celebrate and throw a party with you. But you have to acknowledge that you're one of them and not break it into you're out here and they're somehow down there. And so the father still reaches out to his son. It's interesting what the father says. All that I have is yours. What was it the younger son realized? When he was there and he was hungry, he looked and said, my father has more than enough bread and to spare. What the father's is saying is, I've got more than enough. All that I have is yours. There's no lack. I can meet every need that you have. And then verse four. Verse 32, I love the way Jesus sends this story. Friends, grace always wins. It says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and he's found. Jesus says that our, the love of our father is not going to allow the religious legalistic types to shut down the party of grace that he wants to throw. He says, no, it's right that we celebrate
1: and I'm going to go back into the party. You're invited to come. But if you stay out here, what happens? You miss out. You miss out on all the good that, that I want to give you. And so grace still wins, and grace always
0: leads to profound joy. That's the rhythm, that's the gospel rhythm we see throughout the scriptures. That's the, that, that's the dance that we're to do, is to understand that when we humble ourselves and receive grace, joy and celebration always is the response. And that's what Jesus is telling us. Uh, why he's telling us the story. Ultimately, his story is all about grace. So I want to I do this as we kind of think about how this applies to you. I want to show you a painting. This is Rembrandt's uh, painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it's an amazing uh, piece of art. But what we need to understand is God's grace is God's love given freely to those who don't deserve it,
1: those who did nothing to earn it, those who simply returned home and knelt empty handed acknowledging their brokenness and their
0: sinfulness and allowed the Heavenly Father to meet them at the greatest place of need. That's the gospel message. It's what we're meant to understand from this story that grace is not something that we deserve. Grace is something we are given. Grace is not something we earn. Grace is something we receive. It's a free gift. And the younger son brought nothing at all and received a true identity. He received a true relationship. He received a true provision and true joy from the Father.
1: His shame was covered up in a robe. A ring of sonship was put upon his finger. Shoes were there to comfort, provide for his needs. And he was given a feast and a party to celebrate
0: the joy of the Father. The older son, in his pride, is losing all that's been made
1: made available to him. So, as you look at this picture, Here's what I want you to think about. Have you ever placed yourself on your knees as the prodigal returned home? Have you ever seen yourself in this posture, coming empty-handed to the God who made you, acknowledging that nothing in my hands I bring, but I come trusting and clinging to your grace? And beginning to kneel in that space. Have you ever knelt before the Father? Have you ever felt the embrace as you look at that picture? Have you ever felt the embrace of the Father's hands upon your own back, your own shoulders, accepting you home? Have you ever received the grace that he offers? Have you ever allowed for the fact that he's not just tolerating you? He's rejoicing over you. He doesn't forgive you because he has to. He gives you because he loves you. He doesn't wait and say, check all the boxes, do all the things. The second he sees you returning home, he leaps off the porch and runs. This is my son who is dead is alive. The one who's lost is free. That's the gospel. It's the only way of faith. But you notice in the picture, there's also an older brother. Tell me what you see in the older brother. Because we can choose to be like the younger brother that kneels before the father and receives the touch of grace and the provision, comfort, and the care, and the celebration. We can also remain outside of that, close by the father, close enough to see it all, close enough to understand what's going on. But you notice he's still distant. You notice he's still looking down. You notice he's still standing, proud of himself, aloof and separated and isolated from from the Father. You notice that he's not experiencing compassion. There's still a critical spirit, prideful spirit in him. But you also notice he's not receiving anything. He's left on his own. He's not receiving the embrace of the Father. Not receiving the comfort, Father's grace.
0: He's not receiving the celebration that the Father wants to give him.
1: Friends, I think Jesus, by this story, is putting a choice before us and asking us, do you want to choose the way of grumbling or the way of grace? I think it's important for us as we think about his mission. The church ultimately is a people of grace welcomed by a Father and celebrating together the new life we have because of him and his mercy. You ever thought about that as the definition of church? Is broken people who've received new life by a merciful, compassionate father, who, in his grace, covers our shame, restores our relationship, comforts us at our places of need, and throws a party to celebrate what our return. And friends, let's choose grace and joy this year. Does it sound good? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that I can pray and say, Father, I thank you that though we have each gone our own way and gone astray, that you welcome us home. That though we come empty-handed, that we come humbly acknowledging our sinfulness and our brokenness
0: and our neediness before you, That you meet us with a hug and an embrace. That you meet us with a restoration, with the forgiveness of sin and the covering of our shame, the meeting and the comforting of our needs, and the provision of great joy and joy forevermore.